If you're growing a business or just thinking about launching a startup, this is definitely the podcast for you. This is Fast Forward, brought to you by Tech Manchester. We support early stage tech focused businesses. Each week, we'll dive into the issues that we know keep entrepreneurs awake at night. We'll chat to experts who'll share their tips and advice on how to handle everything from raising finance, making your first hire, to getting your company noticed on social media or in the press. Running a business is a roller coaster. It's exhilarating, but it's pretty damn scary at times too. We're here to help you get your business off the ground and hopefully get a better night's sleep. It's hosted by me, Patricia Keating, Executive Director at Tech Manchester. Standing in a tin shed, waiting for the van to come. Oh, friend, have you seen where my golden tickets be? Welcome back to Fast Forward. My guest today has been on an incredible journey. We met a few weeks ago at the Evas in Blackpool, and I couldn't wait to get her here on the podcast to share her story. As a 10-year-old child growing up in Zimbabwe, she dreamed of becoming a lawyer, despite the odds being stacked against her. And following the breakdown of her relationship later in her life, she made the brave decision to move to the UK, leaving a young son behind initially to be able to achieve that goal. She worked hard to carve out a better life for herself and her family and she was in touching distance of realising her dream of becoming a lawyer when she was offered a place at the Manchester Met University. But it wasn't to be. She was diagnosed with breast cancer and had to drop out. But all of that experience sparked a business idea and Sealash was created. Cody Gapar, I'm delighted that you're here to tell me your story and share us a little bit more about Sealash and your entrepreneurial journey. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So uh, before we get into um, what Sealash is, and it is incredible, the journey that you've brought on, we do like to get a little bit of your backstory. And yours is just absolutely incredible. I'd like you to take us back to Zimbabwe and tell us a bit about what your childhood was like and what that journey was like here to the UK. Oh, God, where do I start? <laughs> so, so yeah, I was I was the fifth of seven children. So I come from a really big family. And in my family, my in our family, we were all, well, my brothers and sisters were all quite average in school. So they would probably be the middle in, academically. Mm-hmm. I was the only one who was always bottom of the class. So I was never academically gifted. Um, but when everybody was watching uh, programs on telly like MacGyver and WWF, I was obsessed with a program called Carson Slow. Okay. And it was an Australian sitcom about a family of lawyers. And for me, just the grace with which they used to go into a, into a courtroom and put the walls to right without ever raising a voice made me want to become a lawyer. So from a young age, I really, want, really wanted to be a lawyer. But without any academic muscle behind me, I knew this was an up, upward struggle, the first thing. And the second thing is... My family wasn't really rich. I mean, we were poor. So for me, I knew that to get money to actually go and do law Mm. was going to be another struggle. Another struggle, yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't the the best times uh, in your country at all. At the same time, you know, not only were you dealing with sort of family challenges, but you had political ones as well with the Robert Mugabe regime. Yeah, at that time, because the, the time that I grew up in the 80s, 
Zimbabwe is absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it was in the late 90s that things started to go really, really wrong. This is when I was starting to finish school and looking at what I needed to do with my life. And things started, started down, going downhill. And unfortunately, in Zimbabwe, things didn't gradually go bad. They went bad almost overnight. Really? So from having um, a pension for my dad... His pension was completely cut off and we had to face challenges that we, we, we didn't. We had challenges before, but we had new challenges on top of that. And then it was during that time that you actually made the incredibly difficult decision to leave the country. Um, that must have been such a horrendous decision to make, particularly being a young mother at, at that particular time. Yeah, um, that decision, somebody says that a mother would never put their son in a situation that's worse than the, the mm-hmm. situation they're currently in. So for me, having my first child and at the time where you want to spend 24-7 with the child just looking at them, for me to make a decision to just leave them and go to a foreign country where you don't know if he's going to eat, you don't know if he's going to graze his knee, is somebody going to look after him? Yeah. And I had to make that difficult decision to, to leave him. But for me, it was... I stayed with him and starved with him or I went out and tried and get a better life for him. Yeah, horrendous choices to make. So what was life like then in the years that followed? So you came to the UK. Uh, did you come alone? I did. I came alone. Um, I came to the UK and I I worked in Manchester. Um, I got uh, a job working. Uh, initially, I was cleaning toilets mm-hmm. at uh, the Trafford, Trafford Centre. Um, and later on, I got a job uh, as a croupier. I was a um, casino dealer at Grovner Casino. Uh, and it was at this time that I met um, my ex-husband who lived in Cheshire. So I moved to Cheshire to... Um, moved in with, with him in Cheshire. Mm-hmm. Um it was this time that I then joined uh, a company. I worked for a few companies, different companies. But the dream of being a lawyer was always, always there. something there. It, it was almost like a shadow that never left me. Um, and I knew at some point I didn't, I wasn't really bright in school. But then as you grow older, your mind, you start to realize where your strengths are mentally and where your weaknesses are and you compensate your weaknesses with your strengths. So I started thinking that maybe there was something in, you know, it's like when I went into work, I was quite competent and I was, I realized I worked, I'd never passed a meds exam in my life and yet I'd worked as a casino dealer. So yeah. I couldn't have been that. No, you had to be good at math. Yeah, I had to be good at something. <laughs> I was, I couldn't have been that daft if I could yeah. do those things. So I started to stop believing what had always been my life narrative that you're not academically gifted because I started to question if I wasn't academically gifted, how come I go into these jobs and I get yeah. promotions and learn a second language? <laughs> I don't have a second language unless you count Northern Irish. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's quite. Yes, so that's when eventually I joined a company called Fleet Operations, and mm-hmm. in in a lot of ways, Fleet Operations became a company that shaped me. I think that's where the Cody started to emerge. At that time, I didn't know. But the guy who owned the company, his name is Ross Jackson, who's still my mentor to this day, um, used to hear me talking about my life back home. And the mm-hmm. idea of becoming a lawyer would always come up and I'd always talk about it. And he was like, well, why don't you go and be a lawyer? You, you can be if you want. And I was like, I don't have 
A-levels. I've got all levels, but mm-hmm. I haven't got A-levels. And he was like, well, you need points to get into university. And we offer um, NVQ um, course here. You can do a business administration NVQ mm-hmm. course. And if you get to level three, you've got enough points to get into uni and you can go and do your... And I didn't yeah. realize until you told me that it was one of, during one of my appraisals. And I immediately went and I found out where I could that I could do this and I signed up for for the NVQ. Now I was so determined to do this. This was supposed to be an eighteen months course. I did it in twelve. And let's get it let's get it going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean I'd I'd been wanting to do this my whole life. So as soon as I found out that it was actually possible for me to get into uni, I I did and immediately I applied to go to MMU because well, I'm in a Manchester United supporter, so... I mean, where else were you going to go? Where else would I go? <laughs> <laughs> so you applied? I applied, and I got... Uh, obviously, they sent you um, a form, and you have to get quite a few things, your CV, you have to get... Um, you have to get three people, references that, mm-hmm. you know, it's like... Um, I did all that, and then finally they sent me an email saying... Um, We've received everything you've sent us. would like to invite you to a final interview. And the interview was on the 11th of August, 2014. And that day will always be the day that Cody the girl became Cody the woman because the events of that day directly impacted what happened and directly impacted the fact that I ended up with a company and I ended up doing exactly what I'm doing today. So let's talk about that because that experience that particular day wasn't like a, it was a, a life-defining one. Um, it was a life-changing day. Tell us about that. Was, so uh, 10 days before I woke up one day, went into, I was supposed to go into work. I found out that when I was just applying a moisturizer, wasn't looking for it, I found a lump on my breast. Mm-hmm. I went to my doctor, immediately referred me to Leighton Hospital and when I got to Leighton, it was literally within days that they referred me. When I got there, they decided that they were going to do a biopsy and find out exactly what this was, the lump. Um, the results of the biopsy was in 10 days. And the 10th day was the 11th of August. And it was at three in the afternoon. Now, that was the very day that I was supposed to go for my final interview mm-hmm. at six in the evening mm-hmm. um, in Manchester Metropolitan. Now, for me, I had always had preconceived ideas about cancer and about who should and shouldn't or who would and wouldn't get cancer. So for me, I honestly thought, and this is where you see that ignorance is just a massive big illness. Because for me, I thought I was too young, I was too black, I was too skinny, I was too active to get cancer. Yeah. So even though I had had a biopsy and even though I'd found a lump, I did not Still think that I was ever going to be part of that statistic. So had I even stopped to think that this could be my reality, I would have cancelled that interview. But for me, I thought, I'm going to go to the hospital. They're going to tell me that, well, you've got a benign mm-hmm. tumour and I'm going to go for my yeah, interview. It's business is normal. Yeah, so yeah. that that was just a, a glitch in my day. But the big thing that I was looking forward to was the interview at 6 o'clock. Mm. So then because I wasn't prepared for what was coming. The first thing was I never told anybody that I was going for my results. I didn't take anyone with me, so I drove myself. And I was, 
I had actually sent an email that morning confirming that I'll be appearing for the interview at MMU. And mm-hmm. I was focused on that interview so much. I walked into the small room, you know, in movies when they say, just come in and sit in this little room. Yeah. It's never good news, no, is it? don't ever go in the room. Just don't go in <laughs> don't the room. Go run, in away, the run away room. down the hall. <laughs> don't so, go in there. So I went into the small room and they set me down and um, the doctor, her name was Miss Pope, tried as gently as possible to, there's no way to break bad news because no. bad news is bad news. Um, eventually she did tell me that I had cancer and because I wasn't prepared, there was a moment of disbelief, like, are you sure you know what you're saying? Yeah. And then it hit me that this is this is going to be my future. I'm going to have to face this. Um, and I closed my eyes for a minute and then I opened them and I said, so what do we do now? And then she started giving me the treatment plan. This mm-hmm. is what we're going to do. And I remember saying to her, you need to stop right now. And she looks at me and she said, why? And I said, because I have to be somewhere. I haven't got time to sit and go through this right now. Mm-hmm. I'll come back and we'll talk about it. But right now I have to go. And the nurse was there with a box of tissue waiting to comfort me. And there I am packing my bags and leaving the yeah, room. I'm out of here. And she runs after me because I didn't wait to be dismissed. I literally picked my things up and I walked out. And the nurse was like, do you understand what just happened to you? And I said, totally, I do understand. And she's like, so you, you're leaving. Who is driving you? And I said, I'm driving myself. I've got to be, uh, there's somewhere I've got to be. And she says, where are you supposed to be that you're, you're such in a hurry to get to? And I said, I've got an interview that I've got to attend. So I'm walking, I'm talking to her as mm-hmm. I'm walking out the door. Yeah. So literally walked out, went in my car, drove from Crewe to Manchester and sat there. And I remember being really calm. Not once did I wobble, not once did I stop to cry or anything. I was focused because I was thinking they had sent me a few um there were a few scripts that I had to read and I had to concentrate. There was some they were going to ask me questions based on the things that they had sent me through. So that that's what I was focused on and I needed to nail this interview. Remember I'd been chasing this dream yeah. since I was ten. So I got there. The first was a group interview that went and then the one-on-one interview, the last question was, is there anything that you know that might interfere your study at this college? And obviously that would have been a generic question. Everybody would have been asked that yeah. question. One day earlier that question meant nothing. Meant, meant nothing, absolutely. Um, and had I thought about it, I would have lied. Absolutely, because yeah. I, I really wanted to get into uni. But they caught me in a ways and yeah. I had to own up and say, I just found out I had breast cancer. Um, and I remember the lady saying to me, so why did you come? Why did you decide to come? And I always say it was not until that minute that I actually realized what I'd done that mm-hmm. day. Because I say to her, you know, for a long time I've wanted to do this and I've chased this dream at a time when I didn't even think it was possible. Now, today I found out news that could actually derail my dream. Cancer is only ever going to be a chapter in my life. But this is going to be the story of my life. So... I can't let a chapter rewrite the whole book of my life. So I would like to continue to chase my dream. And I got my place. You did? Three days later. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Which is great because you have to live. You have to live. Absolutely. But you're not a lawyer yet. No, I'm not a lawyer yet. Um, but it did spawn the business idea. So tell us about the journey from law to cancer treatment to sea lash. So... 
the reason I always, this story is always really important is at that time, at that day, I taught myself what I was capable of. Yeah. The Cody that was able to face challenges and get past them. I got into law and I actually attended a few lectures, but as soon as treatment started, even I couldn't cope with looking after my yeah. kids, working and, and, and still going. Yeah. So I had to make the most heartbreaking decision to drop out of law school. Um, when I was going through treatment, I was, obviously my whole family was in Africa. I have distant relatives that I hear that way, but then they, they don't live close to me. Mm-hmm. So most of my treatment, I had to depend on friends and family that were around me. But mostly it was just me and my kids. And it was those days when I couldn't afford to feel sorry for myself. I couldn't afford not to work. That's the first thing. I, I continued to go to work as much as I could throughout my whole treatment. I couldn't continue to tap out as a mom. I I I, I didn't have a choice of not being a mom today because yeah. my kids depended on me. Um, And the pain of chemotherapy is so great. And the only thing that I could do was just to find a game plan. And my game plan was lipstick and heels. So <laughs> <laughs> lipstick and heels sounds really trivial when you speak about it. But for mm-hmm. me, it made such a difference because I decided one day that I was going to wake up in the morning and I was going to put makeup on. And I spent, I remember looking on YouTube because I was never really good at makeup. Mm-hmm. So that evening I was looking at YouTube videos and looking how to put my makeup on. I couldn't wait to get out of bed the next day, went, had a shower, and I tried this makeup and I just looked beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I put my re- a really nice dress on and I put shoes on. Yeah. And it became an obsession that you have to look good. And gradually, without realizing it made me feel better on the inside, mm-hmm. how I looked on the inside and outside. And it became about my outward appearance, not the pain that I was feeling. The only thing that defeated me, and it became easy for people to not notice that I was going through treatment because I was I was looking fly all the time. <laughs> yeah, people couldn't tell. People couldn't tell. The only way they could tell was because I, I could hide the fact that I didn't have high air. I could draw my eyebrows on. But my lashes, once they fell out, I couldn't wear false lashes because false lashes would immediately drop off. Mm. They didn't have any way to rest. They didn't have any way to attach to because I didn't have lashes. So that's when I realized that the lashes that were the mainstream lashes didn't really work very well for people who ironically actually needed lashes. That's when I came up with the idea of sea lash. I thought if this, if I couldn't wear false lashes that were on the market, mm. I was going to create my own. So tell us about Sealash. Tell us about that journey of creating a new product, which uh, I can't wait to talk about how you've managed to get it into some of the biggest retailers in the UK. Um, so, so how do you go from I've got an idea to create a new lash to being one of the main suppliers into Boots, which we're going to talk about? So the, I think my biggest, um, the biggest advantage that I had was ignorance because I didn't know how big this mountain I was about to climb was because mm-hmm. I had no business background. I had no beauty background. I had never even been in the same room with somebody who had brought a product to market. So I didn't know what I didn't know. All I knew was I wanted to wear lashes and they were not there and I was going to create them. So I remember actually sitting at my kitchen table with tape and a pair of old lashes and some scissors and I was doing this thing. I didn't realize at that time that what I was creating was a prototype because 
how could I? Yeah, nobody ever told me. Yeah, you know now. That's what you were doing. <laughs> I know now. <laughs> and I, you know, when Richard Branson talk about scribbling at the back of an envelope, mm-hmm. I've actually got a shoebox at home where the which which I call my starter pack, where all the things that I did initially was I actually have a an envelope where I was scribbling like drawings of what yeah. I what I wanted my lashes to look like, and. Um, and for me, one thing became clear when you are attaching a false lash, the bit that you attach, the bit that you put glow onto, it's, it's, it's almost as thick as a, the edge of a paper. Mm-hmm. So it's a very small surface area to work with, especially if it's going to be hanging in air, because remember, you haven't got lashes to, to, lean, it to lean it on. So for me, it became almost an engineering kind of way of looking at it. What I needed was to increase the surface area that I was working on. So I needed a band that attached to the eyelid to uh, to offset the weight of the lash itself. Mm-hmm. So that's what I was sort of like looking at. So I became obsessed with watching Dragonstein and people. <laughs> no, I am not a fan of that show. <laughs> I'm not a fan. But then I started to get, you know, it's like the right language and the right things that you needed to, you, yeah. people start talking about, business yeah. plan, people start talking about. You can learn wherever you can learn. You can, yeah. Absolutely. And so it became, uh, Dragon's Den, it became Google and it's, it's just trying because at that time when you, it's different from when you want to do something that's already been done. You can just go and ask people who've done it. Yeah. For me, it was about wanting to learn what I was trying to bring to market, but also protecting the idea that I had. Because from very early on, I had a feeling that this was something that was going to be quite successful because people, everybody that I was talking to, and even when I went to chat rooms, people were constantly talking about this problem of missing lashes. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is, I mean, the you know, the main reason that most startups fail is because they... they you know, create a product that no one wants or needs. But it sounds like you had very much found a really crucial problem and the market for, you know, I don't know what the statistics are these days for people that are suffering from cancer or going through chemotherapy, but there's a huge, unfortunately, a huge market out there for it. Yeah, I mean, there is probably over about 40,000 people get diagnosed with, with, with cancer every year and that's that's a huge number. And a big number of that uh of those people get diagnosed, uh, mm-hmm. go on to have chemotherapy and lose their hair and lashes. And and the the good thing about those statistics is because of um, advancement in in, um, in medicine, 50% of the people who get diagnosed get to survive and live yeah. a normal life. So there the is now, back in the day when you got cancer, that people were looking up, yeah. they were talking mortality. Now we're talking about life after cancer more and more. Yeah. And people don't want sympathy. They don't want people to feel sorry for them. They just want understanding and they want a life as close to normal as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was it was this. And for me, I, I, I didn't know that I was doing market research, but I did quite extensive market research. So every time I went for treatment, I would... Mither every single person that was in there. <laughs> like, just tell well, me about I mean, it. You know, <laughs> and I would Gotta do something when you're <laughs> absolutely. And, and I was fearless those days. Yeah. I would speak to the patients. Well, sure, what was the worst that was going to happen? Absolutely, you, know what I mean? you can you can the only say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I would speak to the other people that I was I was going through treatment. And yeah. I would speak to the nurses. I would speak to the doctors. Everybody knew about the girl who was talking about the lashes. So I knew my market and I was always in chat rooms, like yeah. asking the questions and charities and all that. So I knew my market. And then 
when I when it came to making a, a prototype, a, a professional prototype to then take to buyers, I went online and I found out that most of them were in China. And for me, because I knew I, because at this time I am reading everything and anything I can find, I knew the IP laws in China were quite different from from here. So mm-hmm. because I wanted to project my idea, I wasn't keen on going to China. Yeah. I decided that I was going to find a, a company here. And the other thing that I thought is I don't really want to work with a beauty company because I don't want anybody with preconceived ideas of what this life should look like. Mm-hmm. I want somebody who goes in my head, takes what's in my head without question and recreate it. Yeah. So I ended up working with a company called Cube3. They're Southern on Sea and they are an engineering company. Nothing to do with beauty whatsoever. These three guys do not even, well, obviously they don't wear makeup, know yeah. nothing about makeup. And they they were the people who finally produced the final prototype. When that prototype was, was produced, I used to just, like clockwork, I used to call all the high street shops that I could think of, yeah. you know, um, and, and just say, you know, I've got a lash. The lashes that people are trying to use with people who don't have lashes, the lashes that they're trying to use, they're really, really difficult to wear. I've got a lash that I think can make a difference. Mm. Obviously, if you call a buyer, they're not going to call you back. But that didn't stop me. I would call again and again and again. The same people. I think I did this for a month or two. And eventually, uh, and I would send emails as well to everybody and anybody. Uh, And eventually I got a call back from Boots and they said, we heard about this lash that you've got. Yeah. From the 50,000 emails and phone calls. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but persistence pays off. Persistence pays persistence off. Persistence pays off. Um, and they said, you know, we would like you to come in and talk about about the slash and show us the slash. Mm-hmm. Well, I only panicked because when I was talking to people about the slash as if it was actually in a product that was ready for market. Yeah. The company that I was working with, Southern on Sea, they were still working on the prototype. It wasn't ready yet. Yeah. So... Effectively, this was still a concept in my head. There mm-hmm. wasn't anything. So I did call Boots and I said, I would like to come and present my idea to you, but can you give me two months to get it perfected yeah. and I can come? They allowed me to do that, which was really, really good of them. And I did. I walked in. And the day that I, the day before I went in, the person who I was supposed to go with to pitch had to drop out. Okay. I had never pitched an idea because <laughs> I had never run a business. I didn't know the first thing about pitching a product. Yeah. And this was my first pitch. So yeah. call call it baptism by fire, but th- that's what it felt like. Mm-hmm. So initially I decided that I was going to cancel, but I couldn't postpone again. So I had to walk in. So I walked in and I gave what could only be described as probably the worst pitch they've had. <laughs> Something must have worked. But the final thing that I said to them was, I'm actually wearing the lashes right now. Now, this is, this was about three months after I'd finished treatment. I didn't yeah. have lashes. And the the thing that swung that meeting was the whole time that I'd been speaking to them, sitting as far away from them as you are from me, they hadn't noticed that the lashes that I was wearing were, were not mine. Yeah. Um, And that meeting changed everything. And it's like, we would like to work with you. And that's it. So exclusive now? With bits, well, were you doing some of the aisle, or you're also doing something? Yeah, with that was supposed to be it. But then yeah. remember, I am the girl who's got 
probably about six to something quid in an account. Mm-hmm. I've got an idea that's not protected and everything. So that was yeah. supposed to be the end of the story. But they said, so if we gave you this order, how are you going to supply it? Mm-hmm. Now I'm sitting there blinking because obviously I at this time I knew I could do it because I'd done everything, everything else. So obviously I could do it. But then at that time I didn't have. So I said, so they said, you need to go away, project your idea and you need to go and think about how you're going to fund this order mm-hmm. if we're going to place it with you. So I went away. Um, I had asked about patenting and I'd been told that it was upward of £20,000, which mm-hmm. I did not have. Yeah, I found out there was something called uh, registration of design, mm-hmm. which was upward of, I think, £8,000 to £10,000, which mm-hmm. still I did not have. So what I did was I spent the next three weeks reading everything about registration of design, taught myself and went and I did it myself. So I got myself that. And then I trademarked my idea. And then I went to the business show in London. Uh, they were doing a Dragon's Den type competition. Mm-hmm. About about 5,000 businesses applied to enter. Mm-hmm. I was one of the 28 that made the final cut. I went there. I won the Innovator of the Show Award. And then I called Boots and I said, I think I've got... And did that give you capital then to be able to... Because how did you fund? So I actually went... Before I went to um, to London for the um, the business year in London, I had entered a local competition in, in Northwich yeah. called Salter's Den. And yeah. I had come first in that. And I got 2500 from that. And I got legal and financial advice for a year. So yeah. that took care of uh, contract negotiations. It took care of... You know, it's like the financial side of things and, mm-hmm. and all that. So I went back to Boots and I said, this is what I've got. I still haven't got the money to supply the order, yeah. but I'm putting together a crowdfunding package. So Boots said, would like to introduce you to someone. And that's when they introduced me to Ilo. And then I had to pitch my idea to Ilo, who loved the idea so much. And they decided that they would like to work with me. And that's how the relationship with ILO started. So are they there? Are they your investor? Um, so I've licensed my idea to ILO. Okay. Um, so we, I work with them. So I have, I have um, access to everything from marketing, distribution, mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. that that they do. Uh, but what it just means is I've got. Um, a company behind me that takes care of the things that I couldn't have taken care of as an individual. Yeah. And with their years of experience of, because there's like yeah. the leading. And the products that they do. Absolutely. So they had a lot of the the gaps that I lagged in, in the business and in the beauty industry. They had a team that was working with me and that just allowed the idea. Mm-hmm. And for me, I thought working with a giant like ILO, surely... Christmas 2016 will be on the market. Uh, but one thing that we both, both myself and Ilo had agreed on was we would not put this product on the shelf until it was a product that I would give to my own grandma because mm-hmm. the people that were going to be using this product had enough on their plate yeah. without having a product that I was going to give them problems. So it took us three years to develop this product to a product that we were quite happy with. That's why it only hit the shelves in this year, in April. I can't wait to try it. I'm terrible at putting eyelashes on. These ones sound brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so the product's hitting the shelves. Oh, yes. it's hit the shelves. 
They have, yes. You can go into Boots today and buy Sea Lash. We can. Um, so what's next? What's the most exciting thing that's next on the horizon? What's your commercial? What's the next product online platform? Where are you going to take the business after this? So off the back of this, uh, the one thing that has come from this um, is I've become sort of like I've been asked to speak at events and stuff. So I've become a paid speaker, mm-hmm. an inspirational speaker on the back of this. On the side of uh, Silash and the beauty side, my idea from the get-go was never just about lashes. Remember, my idea was lipstick and heels. Mm-hmm. So for me, beauty while going through trial is important because we forget that just because somebody's going through stuff, it doesn't mean that they have to lose their femininity. They have to lose yeah. the masculinity. Identity. So, so Absolutely. So that identity is really important. So there's a lot of challenging things that we face when we're going through illness. You know, it's like that stop us from looking good just like everybody else. Like I said, my company, the name of my company is Nakao, which means in my language, be beautiful too. Mm-hmm. So no matter what you're going what is through. It? What is the word? Nakao. Nakao. So um, no matter what you're going through, you have the right to look beautiful just like everybody else. So we mm-hmm. are working on products, which I couldn't tell you at this point in time, but we're working on more products that make the beauty market accessible to people going through treatment. Treatment, Amazing. Not just for cancer, but for other diseases as well. So long term, what's the North Star? What does success look like for you in, in, the, in the future? Where are you trying to take everything or what success look like for you? I think success for me is I want to be able to have a beauty brand that people can trust, that people do not ever need to read the label because we need to be able to do that for them. And they can just walk in and whatever we 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 need i need to have to to get to a point where we have a company that listens to people it's it doesn't matter what my personal preferences are but then the people that we're doing this for mm-hmm. have got their s- special needs and we should be a company that should listen first and research and development should be at the core of what we do and give people solutions that work and give people solutions that and that is never an easy thing or the most business savvy thing to do because sometimes it's expensive to do that. As I found out with Silash, it became a very long project that with any other company, if it wasn't ILO, they probably would have dropped it because everything that could go wrong went wrong. (laughs) But I was committed because for me, it was something that was close to my heart. I had gone through cancer and I knew what it meant for me Mm -hmm. when I had those lashes and I was there and they were willing to stand by me and say, Whatever this, wherever this is going to take us, we're going to get that. So the next product might well be exactly like that, but if it's needed and if it's going to help somebody out there, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that at the end of the day we can stand shoulder to shoulder with those people and say we have tried and yeah. this is what we have managed to provide for people who need the the products that we produce. So you've been through some of the most Incredible highs and some of the most horrendous lows. And and that is the journey of, of many entrepreneurs. Um, what pieces of advice would you have for other uh, people that are on that journey at the moment, um, taking from your own personal experience and, and um, could share with them today? So I've got this thing that I always say to people, just start. 
whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Start poor, start ignorant, start confused, start sad, start mad, start happy. Whatever you're trying to do, start. Because once you start, whatever else that follows after is you looking for solutions. Because before you start, there is nothing that you can even begin to look at. You don't have anything that you can fix. You don't, Because whatever problem is out there, there is a solution. Maybe it's not an easy solution, but there is a solution. But you can't ever do that before you start. So the first thing is just start. And for me, the other thing that I learned is sometimes life never takes you the way you meant to go. And it, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. Allow the world to open up and show you where you're supposed to go. Because for me, I was convinced that I wanted to be a lawyer. And now... You I'm, still might. <laughs> I still might. <laughs> but I'm taking a completely different journey. Yeah. And I have never felt so at peace with myself and the decisions that I've made on that journey. Mm-hmm. So opening yourself to possibilities and allowing yourself to say, okay, this is the route that I thought I was taking. That was the correct answer for yesterday, but today probably is a different answer. And it's okay to change direction because allow yourself to be persuaded. There are different solutions for different things every time. And then maybe the third thing and the most important that I've learned is never stop growing and never stop learning. Because for me, I started this journey with no business acumen whatsoever. And one of the biggest things that I did was um, to go back to uni and I'm now doing my master's in business admin. And the things that I've learned there, some of them were the most obvious things that you people react in a certain way. You speak to people and they do certain things and you would never understand them until you've gone through going to school and learn mm-hmm. what people do. So for me, that decision to go back to school and allow myself to sit at the feet of people who've done it has been such an incredible thing. And I've, I've, I'm learning every day from the people that I meet because without their knowledge, I, I wouldn't be able to be where I am today. So yeah. just allow yourself to be taught. Cody, I have loved um, spending this afternoon listening to your story. You are an incredible inspiration. Um, I hope that has given you some insight into um, some of the highs and lows of an entrepreneur's journey and given you some inspiration to, as Cody says, just start Um, And overall, I hope that gives you a better night's sleep. Thank you. Thank you. 